Welcome, world, to another episode of Nobody's a Nobody podcast with me, Mike McVeigh. This is the podcast where I interview people I find absolutely fascinating, and I believe you will too if you give them a chance. This week, I will be interviewing the mother, my mom, Marlene McVeigh, and Jarvis's hot dog song of the week is Objectionable Object Number Three by Dr. Pants. Wait a minute. We have Dr. Pants on? Oh, sweet. I love Dr. Pants. He is awesome. Not that the other musical artists aren't awesome, but this is just really cool. Our season finale. Oh, did I mention? This is the season finale for season one of Nobody's a Nobody podcast. And we've this will be our 42nd interview. This is our 70th episode overall for the year. We're going to take a couple months off. I know that that is going to sadden several of you, but for the rest of you, you'll finally have a chance to catch up on all those episodes you haven't yet listened to at this point. Uh, So some people have asked, what am I going to be doing that free time? Well, over the month or so, two months or so that I'll be off, I'll be working on some stuff with Toastmasters. Um, We will be, I'll be disc golfing a lot more and the weather is great for it. I will probably be playing a lot of World of Warcraft. I'm just being honest. And then on top of all that, I will just enjoy life. Oh, in fact, uh, my wife and I signed up for a Ron Burgundy, um, um, oh, jog or something, or yog, I think, because the J is silent. And uh, we'll be doing a 5K and we'll post pictures on the website or something because it's silly. But let's get to the fun parts of this because this is not the part you came to listen to. You came to hear about the interview. So our person today is Marlene McVeigh. And she currently works for Pixie Dust Adventures, which is pixiedustadventures.com. And this is also another travel agency. I do still fully support Magical Partners Travel, but every travel agency has its specialty and they have different ways of doing things. And so I definitely want you to keep supporting Magical Partners Travel, but maybe you're on the East Coast and want to talk to people who are also living on the East Coast. And Pixie Dust Adventures is definitely an opportunity to do that. The shout out business of the week is Pixie Dust Adventures. Our nonprofit is going to be oneokc.org. That's Our Neighborhood Empowered. And to let some of you know, um, didn't quite raise as much money as I was hoping to for the birthday party, but we did raise a lot of money. I think we raised a little bit over $700, $800 for overall between the different ways we were doing things. So thank you so much for those who donated. All that money goes to helping children have a better chance to succeed in life. So thank you specifically for doing that. Now, this week, I am interviewing my mom. There's a couple different reasons for this. One, the person I was originally going to have, there's some issues with the interview itself. Uh, One of the things I do for all of my guests is I give them an opportunity, uh, especially if they're sensitive material, to listen to it and make sure that they're okay with what's being shared. And I stick to this, but unfortunately, some of the timing came off and I wasn't expecting it right when I did, when it all happened. So we kind of floundered a little bit, which is one reason why we didn't have an episode last week. But um, I did ask my mom kind of last minute and she was willing to. And I think some good stories in here. It definitely helps me understand more about me. So hopefully um, it'll be beneficial for you as well. We do talk about a couple subjects that could possibly be triggering. There won't be a warning for that other than the fact that if some of the stuff with the riots and protest um, gets you really upset, we do talk about um, a riot that happened back in the 1970s, and it does talk about some material that is pretty sensitive. So I um, want to give you that heads up now, but we just talked to my mom, try to focus as little on me as possible. I know that's a change, but here she is, the mother, Marlene McVeigh. So you and uh, my father had a really interesting relationship on how you met and some of the process with that. So why don't you talk about how you met my dad and um, some of the follow-up with that? Okay. I met Michael Murphy McVeigh at the Lift Number 3, which was a discotheque in Dallas, Texas. My roommate was there that night with a friend dancing, and she called me, said, got a table by the Uh, dance floor so I came to join him and when I walked in she was dancing with this tall handsome man and uh, he happened to notice so that she was wearing an engagement ring and so later he came over to our table and he asked me to dance and we danced several different times that night and at a point he asked me if I wanted a drink and I said no I don't drink Um, 
and uh, that didn't scare him away, which was good. And at the time that my girlfriends and I were ready to leave, uh, he asked me for my phone number. And I didn't give my phone number to strangers that I didn't know. So I told him I worked at the Dallas Police Department. He said, so? And I thought, well, that's good because lots of times when I say that, that's the end of seeing that guy. So um, I gave him the, I told him that he could call Central Police Office on Monday, that he could look the business number up in the phone book and ask for Central Station. And I worked nighttime shift that he could call after 10 o'clock at night and I would talk to him. And he did. And so after I talked to him on the phone that night, I ran an NCI check on him because he was a total stranger to me. Didn't know anything about him. Now, I believe the statute of limitations has gone on that, but that's not really <laughs> a legal check to do. Is that correct? Well, I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> All right, go ahead and continue. <laughs> um, anyway, he asked me out and we went out several times and then we saw each other every day and we met on August the 9th and we got married on October 25th. So we didn't know each other a long time. And yet during that time, we experienced a lot of things together. I saw him with his family. He saw me with my family my work, his work, around our friends. And uh, he just seemed to be the most considerate guy that I had dated. And I fell madly in love with him. Now, there are a couple of different organizations that you were a part of at that time, I believe. Uh, there was a car club of some sort. Okay. After we got married, we joined the Corvette Club of Dallas. We had a Texas Orange Corvette. I think it was a, like a 1975. Paid $5,000 cash for it. Uh, my husband rebuilt the engine on our kitchen table. Um, we went to activities, rallies, and uh, um, drag racing, that type of thing. And um, it was kind of fun. But then I got pregnant, and so there went the Corvette, and we got a sedan. <laughs> Sorry to ruin that for you. Yeah. So what was your journey leading up to the night at the disco meeting my dad? Okay, I was kind of a, I guess I thought a strange individual. Um, I did not smoke, drink, cuss, didn't run around. Um, I was basically a very good girl, but um, I did not go to church and I would not go to church. And I wanted a guy that didn't smoke or drink or cuss that would be a very nice guy. And here I ended up meeting my husband in a disco um, so I didn't date a whole lot because I didn't, if I knew a guy drank or if he, you know, wasn't what I wanted, I wouldn't go out with him. And um, when I met Michael, um, I didn't know that he smoked until our first date. I got in his Jeep and there was a pack of cigarettes sitting there. So I wouldn't kiss him until he quit smoking. And that was 43 years ago and he hasn't smoked since. So I guess I was a good influence on him. But um, at the time leading up to that, I had decided that I was going to be single, that I would never get married. I would never have children. I would just be a um, businesswoman. I was, went to junior college at Mountain View uh, Community College, got my associate degree, and um, just kind of, I guess, waiting around trying to find the right guy, and I found him. So there's two different things there. One, you said you're planning on being single the rest of your life, but you're also waiting for the right guy. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I just wasn't planning to get married. I still wanted the right guy, but I really didn't think I would ever find the right guy, which is why I decided I wasn't going to get married. Also, I worked at the Dallas Police Department in the Central Patrol Station, uh, did secretarial work, worked uh, night shift, and... I had joined the um, Dallas Police Reserves, went through the Dallas Police Reserve Academy. So I learned how to shoot. I learned how to, um, uh, I learned city ordinances, uh, learned a lot about the Texas laws and what police officers could and couldn't do. Was the first class that was not allowed to carry a weapon in previous classes, they had allowed reserve officers to carry weapons. Um, 
but every time I rode with a police officer, they always made sure I knew where the shotgun was. And if they had an extra gun on them, they let me know. So if, if something went bad, you know, I could, I could get my hands on a gun. Probably the most interesting thing that ever happened was that we got called one time when I was riding with an officer, we got called to um, a fairly wealthy part of Dallas where there was a couple, now this is back in the 1970s, this couple had lived together for like 30 or 40 years and they were not married, which at that time, that was like a, a really odd, unusual thing. People didn't live together that weren't married. Um, and the husband, the, uh, or the man and the wife, that man and woman had uh, bought this house together and they each wanted the other to leave, but they couldn't get the other one to leave. So they would do things to try to get the other one to leave. And this lady smoked, I mean, cigarette after cigarette after cigarette all the time. I'd been on there on domestic calls several times. So this one time we go in and the house smells of gasoline. And I know this lady lights up cigarettes like crazy. And she said that while she was asleep, that her boyfriend had come in and poured gasoline on the wood floor all around the bed and was going to light it to get her to move out. And I just could not wait to get out of that house because I just knew it was going to set fire at any time. But I never really, so that was probably the most interesting call that I ever went on. I never did get go on any calls that involved any shootings or burglaries or, you know, catching somebody in the act. Yeah. You know, really, the streets are pretty quiet most of the time. How long did you do this police reserve work? A um, few months because I met my husband right as I was graduating from police academy. And then I wanted to spend all my time with him instead of riding around in a police car. What'd you do after that? Well, I fell so madly in love with him that the person who did not want any children wanted to have his baby. And so we had you. So then I became a full-time mother as well as a full-time worker. I worked for the city of Dallas for seven years. I worked um, at the Dallas Fire Department originally, then the Dallas Police Department, Water Department, Streets and Sanitation. And each time I changed departments, I was promoting upwards. I was a supervisor at the time um, that I had you and uh I had not planned to be a stay-at-home mom. This was in the, well, you were born in the 70s, but you got to remember I grew up during the 60s, which was big women's lib movement and everything. And so I was not going to be a stay-at-home mom. I was going to be a career woman. And so we did, we based our finances and all on me working. Well, then when you were born, there, here's this, precious little baby with these big blue eyes looking at me in this little blue blanket that they had wrapped you in. And it's like, it just broke my heart because I didn't want to go back to work. I wanted to stay home with you. And I was only able to stay home about six weeks. And then I had to financially go back to work. And it just killed me because I wanted to be home with you. I just was not ready for the feelings that I had. Um, I guess that's something kind of growing up through the women's lib movement. Sometimes you don't, you maybe read about things or you hear about things and maybe you can talk and participate to a certain point, but you don't always know how you're going to feel until you actually experience it. And it took two years before I was able to get in a financial position that I could stay home and raise you. And fortunately I was I was able to find some excellent babysitters during that time period. And you and I were home together for about a year and we had a lot of fun. I took you everywhere with me. Um, I was guilty of not cleaning the house or cooking because I'd spend all day playing with you. And uh, then at a point it was like, okay, I guess really I'm about ready to go back to work because I had gotten to a point I was ready to hang you from the ceiling. <laughs> because you were quite a handful. And um, at the time that I went back to work, we found a daycare center that was very good. And what was great about that was you looked forward to going to daycare. And I looked for, and we also looked forward to picking you up in the evening. So I went to work during the day, enjoyed my job. And then I enjoyed picking you up and uh, being with you in the evenings. 
So for us, that worked out. So it sounds like a lot of those jobs during the 70s and early 80s, you were doing city government type work. Yes. What got you into government? My dad uh, always told me I should get a government job, that it would be there when other jobs were not, that it had job security. Uh, Job security was very important to my dad. And um, I didn't know any different. My mom had worked for the fire department for a number of years in the storeroom and ended up retiring from there. So, you know, I just worked my way through uh, the city government. And then at the time that I went back to work, um, I ended up going to state government. I worked for the Texas, uh, University of Texas Health Science Center in the OB-GYN clinic. Worked for a Dr. Edmund who uh, did a lot of um, scientific research on um, in the OB-GYN area. Uh, was very interesting. And then after that, we moved to Oklahoma and I worked for the I worked for the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center for Dr. Said in the pulmonary division. I was an office manager in that position. So you mentioned uh, that my grandfather put a lot of stress on getting a government job because there's job security. And you also mentioned a little bit earlier about being a part of the women's lib or growing up during the time of women's liberation movement and stuff. So maybe that's something that doesn't always get remembered as well. Basically, if I remember right, your high school counselor or student advisor type person, there was only a couple career tracks at that time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I was in the honors program, was a straight A student, um, should have been able to go to college on scholarship, uh, but I didn't know enough about that at the time. And when I went to my career counselor, guidance counselor at high school and talked about maybe being an attorney or an accountant, she said, oh, you're just going to stay at home and raise kids after you get married. You know, you're not really going to do anything like that. And um, my parents' world was very different than my world because in their world, um, women did not have careers. They might work to help supplement the family income, but they did not have careers. And my dad told me that I should learn to type because I could always find a job as a typist. So I took secretarial classes and I learned to type and I took shorthand and I learned to be an outstanding secretary. And basically most of my career moves started in the secretarial area and then branched out to either like an office manager or uh, some other position. Yeah. And I want to hold on that for just a minute. The idea of typing, I find, I know that you've won some typing awards and I want to just make people feel really bad about how slow they type. I have gotten up to as high as 65 words a minute and that's taken a long time. And for most people that I know, I'm considered a very fast typer. (laughs) And you're not laughing because of like, that's great, Mike. You're laughing at because you have actually won typing awards for typing contests and stuff. I remember this as a kid. What was... I don't, I don't want to say you're fastest, but let's not go there. Like what was the typical range? Like maybe when you considered a slow typing speed as a secretary? Well, I would say a hundred words a minute would be slow. And what did you get up to like that you ever tracked? What was the fastest uh, that you are? 120, 125 words per minute. And that would be like on a five minute time typing with uh, uh, they take the time and how many words and subtract any errors out of it. And so when I say 65 words a minute for me, that is with maybe one error that gets calculated in 65 and you almost doubled that. And even then you're not anywhere close to the fastest typers in the world, like those crazy, crazy people. But um, I just wanted to mention that again, typing is a skill that you developed very well. And when you, and I know secretary is one of the options and they also gave you, there was another option that they said, if you were going to go in the workforce, that you're either going to be a homemaker, a secretary or a teacher. And those are kind of the options. Is that not correct? Yes. 
that is not correct or that is correct? That's correct. I, I wasn't really interested in teaching. Though. So let's talk a little bit more about, let's keep on going with the secretary. So you, um, you took those secretarial skills when you came to Oklahoma um, and you worked for the Health Sciences Center in Oklahoma for a little while with Dr. Saeed. Yes. Con- continue on your uh, career path from there. Okay. From there, I went, I took a job as a legal secretary with Ernest Istook Jr., who was an attorney at the time in Oklahoma City. Uh, he ended up becoming a state legislator and then was in the House of Representatives in Congress for 14 years. So I learned a lot about the law from a business point of view, uh, working for an attorney, and also from the political stance of someone who ran for office and uh, worked um, in the government as an elected official. Um, And then at a point, I met a lady who worked for a federal judge who was an appellate judge. And she told me when there was an opening at the federal court system. I was very happy with my job. I had no desire to change jobs, but I applied for the position just to make my friend happy. And afterwards, it turned out that the attorney that I worked for was joining forces, merging with another attorney and Some major changes were happening. And at that time, the federal government offered me a job as secretary to the clerk of court for the Western Division of Oklahoma. So I did take that job and that was the beginning of my 21 years with the federal government. So I worked as a secretary for several years, went to law school at night. Then I became a courtroom deputy to a federal judge, Ralph G. Thompson. And even before you were going to law school, you actually went back to get your bachelor's degree as well. Yes. And I I believe it was at the time, it was one of the very first adult studies type bachelor's program. That's now very popular across the United States. Yes. I got a bachelor's in management of human resources from Southern Nazarene university. It was an adult program where A group of students all started at the same time. They already had to have at least 60 hours of college credits, which I probably had about 120, just not in the right areas to graduate from anywhere. So I took this this course and what they did, instead of having you enrolled in several classes during a semester, you would take one class for approximately six weeks, going two nights a week and once you completed that class, then your group had a different instructor come in who taught a different class for the next four to six weeks, et cetera. And so this was like an expedited program that took over a year. I don't remember. It might have been two years going um, weekly uh, to finish up. And at the end of that time, then I got my bachelor's degree. And since I got a bachelor's degree, I immediately Uh, took the LSAT and enrolled at the University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma City University. Oklahoma City Uh, University. You you keep on jumping ahead way too quickly. So at the MHR program that you're doing with SNU, and again, that was one of the very first adult study programs, I believe in the nation. It wasn't just a unique thing. And now that's kind of the moneymaker for a lot of colleges uh, to do that. So that's kind of cool to be in that. I believe you were in the who's who you got recognized as a who's who for your academic success there. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, You then went on to Oklahoma city university and what, well, what inspired the idea of going to law school? Like why, why go become a lawyer? All my life. I was kind of a know-it-all and people used to tell me that I should be a lawyer and I liked to argue. Of course, that's really, those are not reasons to become an attorney, but um, I guess it was just a goal that I wanted to do. Maybe it was because I didn't get to go to school at the same time as my friends did. Um, It took me 20 years to get my bachelor's degree and so it was, it was a goal that I had wanted to do was to become an attorney. And I absolutely loved law school. 
I loved the classes. I loved the professors. At the time, I was working for a federal judge who had law clerks who had all been at the top of their law classes, and I really enjoyed discussing the law with them and being able to see in the courtroom on a regular basis how trials were conducted and hearings and uh, both civil and criminal. And I just really immersed myself in that area. It uh, challenged me uh, academically, um, scholastically. I really enjoyed all that. And then I graduated from law school and it was one of those things where in Oklahoma, uh, there were way too many people with law degrees and not enough attorney jobs. And ironically, in my position as a courtroom deputy to a federal judge, I made much more money than many of my fellow classmates who were at the top of the class were making in their jobs. And they were working a lot more hours than I was. And so I never made that transition from uh, my government position into an attorney position. Um, so now that it's been about 25 years or so since you got that law degree and you made that decision to stay in the federal government, is that something that you regret or do you think that um, it was still good that you went through all that? Like what, what are kind of some of your feelings now? I wouldn't try the experiences I had from law school, which were absolutely wonderful. And I do believe that that law degree helped me get the positions that I did. Unfortunately, I had a nice big student loan that went along with that. And that part I regret very much. If I had to do it over again, I don't think I would have gone to law school if I had realized the debt I would have encumbered. But, uh, you know, you live and learn. Yeah. So you're working for the federal courts. Um, you just graduated from law school. And then uh, kind of a traumatic event happened. We uh, had the experience of, um, you know, April 19th, 9.02 a.m. Um, a bomb went off in downtown Oklahoma City. And if you're okay with it, I don't want you to share anything you're not comfortable with, but would you be willing to share uh, some of the experiences from being somebody that was actually downtown at 9.02 a.m.? Yes. <clears throat> It was a horrifying experience. I was standing in the uh, front lobby office of Judge Thompson. Uh, he had just walked into the room. The two law clerks were standing there and the secretary was in her desk. And all of a sudden there was a huge boom and glass broke in from the windows. And I found myself underneath a table and don't even remember getting there. All the lights were out, all the electricity was off. Um, like I said, there's broken glass everywhere. And somebody said, get out of the building. And we all got up and I ran through my office and grabbed my purse and my, um, uh, turned my computer off because it had been drilled into me. It was very important to always turn the computer off and started down the stairs and there were emergency lights on and uh, uh, court security directing people out through the basement. And I just thought the building was gonna fall in, cave in on us at any moment. Got outside, it's a bright sunshiny day and uh, go around uh, to the side of the building and somebody said, well, there had been a bomb. And when I looked everywhere and saw broken glass in all these windows of buildings downtown Oklahoma City, I thought we were being bombed like by planes. And then somebody said, no, it was the Murrah building, which was literally across the street from me. It was where my credit union was. I walked through that building uh, frequently uh, each week and uh, started uh, going around because people, everybody's kind of gathering around. Nobody knows what's going on. And then someone says, there's another bomb. Get out of here. And I started running in the opposite direction of the Murrah building, started going uh, further downtown, uh, wearing high heels. And I guess it's kind of, kind of a sad reflection, but I remember in um, uh, dramatic thriller movies, you'll see women running in high heels and think, oh my gosh, nobody can do that. Well, I tell you what, 
when a bomb actually, you think a bomb is going to go off, it's amazing what you can do because I, I was running in high heels and I bet I was running a five minute mile. I mean, it was that bad. Got to a point clear of what all was going on, was able to get hold of my husband on the phone. Um, my car was parked in the Murrah building. The Murrah building had, uh, had parking that a lot of uh, federal employees had parking spaces. And I didn't know how to get home. I didn't know where to go. Uh, somehow, well, I really don't even remember now how I got home, but I ended up home and I know I was in shock for several days. Uh, it was several days before I could get my car and ironically, my car was untouched. It was okay. Um, I was scared for you because when I found out that somebody named McVeigh had done the bombing was being blamed and our name was McVeigh, even though it was spelled differently, it just, it really scared me. And uh, again, I was still in shock for several days. I remember at one point that I needed to go pick your dad up from his job and I took you to a friend's house and gave you a safe word so that you wouldn't leave the house uh, unless somebody gave that safe word. Uh, my brain was just going crazy with all these possibilities. I started getting phone calls from people wanting to know if we were related to Timothy McVeigh. So I immediately called the phone company and changed our phone number and got it unlisted, which created more havoc because friends and relatives were trying to call us to make sure we were okay. And I had changed our number, but it was a, uh, I guess that's when I really found out that there's no such thing as safety, that safety is an illusion. Um, I went to group counseling because of the uh, bombing and, um, you know, found out I'm not in control of everything that goes on. I can only react to what to what happens. I can control what how I react, but not what happens. Um, unfortunately, I knew people who died in the Oklahoma City bombing. I knew a lady who uh, whose body was so mangled and torn up in the um, wreckage, even though she lived, that it it was just horrible. Um, I had coworkers who had children who were in the bombing. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible event. And as soon as an excuse came up, we moved back to the Dallas, Texas area away from Oklahoma. I have never been to visit the Oklahoma Memorial. I've uh, been back to the courthouse and visited people there, but I've never gone to the memorial. I've never had any desire to do so. Um, I found that I was very outraged at people who came to visit the bombing site. Uh, it just didn't seem right to me. I realize people grieve in different ways and have curiosity, but I guess it bothers me to think that the Oklahoma City bombing site is a tourist site, uh, that the museum there is something that tourists go to see. Um, I'm probably looking at it from the wrong angle. It's just after having lived through it, it's very difficult for me to, you know, see it in any other way. Right. And there's a lot of other things on top of that, that we, that we've talked about, but we won't necessarily bring it up here. Um, so you mentioned that we moved to Dallas or that you moved to Dallas. I was going to college at that time. Uh -huh. And so just a few years after this incident, um, <laughs> you're working in um, the bankruptcy courts in Dallas and federal courts and another um, incident happened, you know, uh, and, and that was September 11th of 2001. But instead of necessarily, I'm sure that that brought lots of interesting flashbacks and stuff, but do you feel like it was, it was better that you weren't in Oklahoma city working at the federal courthouse during that time because of having that proximity or was it just as, do you think it's just a scary either way being in a federal court building or federal building when um, September 11th happened? Well, when September 11th happened, I wanted out of that federal building. Um, so having lived through the Oklahoma city bombing, if I had been in Oklahoma, I don't think it would have mattered. I'd have wanted out, um, which they eventually uh, shut down the federal buildings and sent everybody home which I think was a wise decision. Um, 
ironically, that's not the Oklahoma City bombing or 9-11 was not the first um, tragic uh, event that I experienced in my life. Uh, back when I lived in Dallas, before I was married and working at the police department, uh, I was a part-time volunteer at the USO, which was in downtown Dallas. And unfortunately, a police officer was in the uh, projects and shot and killed a young Latino boy who was like 10 years old. Uh, he and his brother had, were involved in some mischief and police picked him up. And the officer like took all but one bullet out of his gun and, you know, kind of a Russian roulette thing and held the gun up to the kid's head and, and uh, killed him. And so Dallas was just, people were outraged and incensed and a group of people decided to hold a, um, not sure what you call it, a, a meeting in public to uh, uh, grieve for the little boy who was killed and to basically call for action against the police officer who shot him. And I, I, was a, I was an employee of the Dallas Police Department at the time, and I was at the USO, which was only half a block from City Hall. And so people had paraded downtown Dallas to City Hall. And then some um, people, I guess, who, I guess militants who are always looking for some excuse, uh, turned over a Dallas police motorcycle and set it on fire. And people started rioting in downtown Dallas, breaking the glass and windows, grabbing um, merchandise out of the windows. People started coming into the USO to get off the street. I mean, I saw cars on the street and like somebody driving right up, uh, driving down the street, somebody running up and trying to pull someone out of the car. That was probably even scarier than the bombing because I was probably like 20 years old at the time. Uh, but that was a, a very scary thing. So, so I've had some, I've lived through some events that have been very tragic. And, uh, you know, each time any one of those would happen, uh, it brings back all the other stuff that's happened uh, memory-wise. But uh, anyway, that's just, you know, it's something a lot of people don't necessarily remember that. But I, I you know, as part of growing up, so with all the things that have happened over the past year with the various protests and riots of whichever side, I'm not really, does that bring back memories to that as well, even though you're not in those situations? It does because there's a group mentality that can take over and uh, innocent people get hurt. And so uh, that's scary. And unfortunately, there's not a whole bunch we can do about it. So you stayed at the bankruptcy court and I'm assuming you retired there? Yes, I retired from the bankruptcy court. Did you ever pick up your law degree and start practicing now that you're retired? I tried. Um, when you go from one state to another, you have to uh, get the credentials to practice law in a different state. And I did not really want to take another bar exam. Um, Still having the law degree, I thought would help in, in getting jobs. But, uh, you know, after that, we, we ended up moving to Pennsylvania and I ended up taking a government job, but a seasonal job, which was which worked out really nice. And so I got paid and met people and got the summers off every year. And so that was great. And then after we left um, left Pennsylvania. We moved back to Oklahoma for a while. And I worked for the state there for the Department of Corrections and the health department. Um, always learning, always learning more. And uh, I think that's something I, I enjoy learning, whether it's in a school atmosphere or in a career path or whatever. Even though I was retired, I still wanted money to supplement my income. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where it is now. And so did you retire from the state as well after that or I, I just resignation? Retire, I just resigned. Okay. And are you still finding ways to supplement your income? Yes. At one point I became a travel agent and uh, I still do that. 
thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, it's a part-time job that I would like to be a full-time job. Um, I joined Magical Partners Travel when my nephew Bryant uh, started his travel agency. And you came on as a partner and then became the owner of that. And then after that, Courtney took over as owner and now Stephanie thoroughly enjoyed it, um, especially because they specialized in Disney and I love Disney. Been to Disney World many times, been to Disneyland, been on Disney cruises, been to Disney Paris. And um, now I live in Florida. And after moving to Florida, there were some difficulties with state regulations for travel agents, especially when they work for an agency that wasn't in Florida, that I ended up changing to uh, Pixie Dust Adventures, uh, which is owned by a dear friend of Courtney. So it kind of worked to everybody's benefit. And I'm still a travel agent. And um, I don't know, I just really enjoy having, helping people plan their travel, helping find the hotel that suits them, um, giving them tips on what can make things hopefully easier for them and uh, sharing my knowledge and expertise in those areas. Um, I'm a big Stitch fan, love Lilo and Stitch and I have a Stitch collection. Um, so when, when one of my clients is a Stitch fan, that's really kind of a, Fantastic. Um, anyway, I enjoy being a travel agent. It's been tough with COVID, but I, I do enjoy being a travel agent. And I have been to Disney and also to Universal during these years, uh, this past year with COVID once they reopened, have felt very, very safe there because of their regulations requiring masks and social distancing and uh, uh, have some fun at the same time. All right. Well, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners out there for this season finale of uh, season one of Nobody's a Nobody? I think one of my greatest successes has been my son. Um, I love you dearly, son. I'm very proud of your podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying listening to them. I haven't listened to them as they came out each week, but I listen to them as I go out walking or driving. Um, I'm very proud of you. You you picked the absolute best possible mate, I think, possible. Brenda is just fantastic. I could not ask for a better daughter-in-law. And then the two of you gave me my beautiful granddaughter, Meredith, who is just absolutely awesome. Um, it's been really good to watch you grow up and see the world through your eyes and see you finish college, get married become a part of society, uh, a contributing member of society to, for you to be responsible. Yes, you, I know, I know. Uh, and still have some humor and to, to, under, to be the kind person that you are. Because I think that everybody who knows you realize that you are very kind. And that's something that I strive for is to be kind. I think the world can use more kindness all the time. All right. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the episode. Hey listeners, it's Jarvix again with my hot dog song of the week. This episode, I'm featuring a track from an artist by the name of Dr. Pants. If perchance you have heard of this project, you'll probably know it by fun nerd rock songs about mad scientists seeking love. Cult celeb daydreams. If I were John Cusack, the chicks might dig me more. And yes, donuts. You'll also likely know that all of these musical ideas come from a weirdo named David Broyles, who has been active in the scene for years as Dr. Pants. Sometimes he plays with a full electric rock band, sometimes he gets his ballad on as an acoustic solo artist, and sometimes he's a composer. That last bit brings us to today's decidedly weird song pick, if you even want to call it a song. 
You see, Dr. Pants took a leap into experimentalism last year with a new album called Objectionable Object. It's a collection of lyricless compositions that are pretty low on traditional musical elements like, well, melody. If that sounds pretty out there, you wouldn't be wrong, but there's a whole thriving world of this stuff where atonality is the norm and noise is celebrated. In fact, I recently heard a new album ahead of its official release that delves into heavily distorted and abstracted noisescapes, some of which were genuinely stress-inducing. And you know what? It's one of the best albums I've heard so far this year. Not too long ago, David Broyles flexed his reach as an ACM at UCO professor and assembled a night of experimental music. We all got together in the ACM songwriting room and listened to piece after piece of strange composition, some accompanied by visuals, and some accompanied only by the shadows in the darkly lit room. It was a special experience, and it was nice to see that there were a lot of other folks out there who also appreciated this far-from-mainstream art form. Objectionable Object is comprised of eight pieces titled Objectionable Object Numbers 1 through 8. My faves of the bunch are probably number 6 and number 7, but to give you more of a taste than a whole helping, I'm playing Objectionable Object number 3, which I also like quite a bit. It has a hulking rhythm that drives through eerie chimes and swarms of taunting, staticized chords. Even so, I can't help but hear traces of the Dr. Pants I've known for years, both the one that wrote a song about literally calling Chewbacca, and the one who thought it would be a good idea to put a pseudo-prog 10-minute number on an EP that otherwise wouldn't have topped 15 minutes. His creativity has always been playfulness taken seriously, and you can catch glimpses of that on Objectionable Object, too. It's miles away from donuts, but there be pastry crumbs here. Even if this experimental stuff isn't your bag, you might dig the pants back catalog. If I may offer a suggestion, start with the Cusack Loggins EP, then work your way into the four-part album called The Trip. Lots of Dr. Pants classics are in these volumes, and the best place to check it all out is on Bandcamp at drpants.bandcamp.com. But for now, here is Objectionable Object Number 3 by Dr. Pants. <laughs>
Thank you, Dr. Pants. That was not necessarily what I was expecting, but thank you, Jarvix, for sharing that. And please do check out Dr. Pants um, on his band camp. There are some wonderful things. In fact, one of my favorites is the stuff dealing with Dr. Who and um, my screwdriver is Sonic. It is a very fun um, song. And he also has... Um, just has a lot of stuff on Bandcamp. You can also check them out at drpants.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-N-T-S.com. Check out Marlene McVeigh at pixiedustadventures.com, our neighborhood out empowered, 1OKC.org. Um, season one has been long. We started in the middle of uh, people opening up for the pandemic um, in different states and have had that journey. We looked at a lot of interviews and we've had a lot of minisodes. We'll probably cut back on some of the minisodes next season, unless you all tell me that's what your favorite part is. But I thank you for the privilege of uh, you listening to me or my guests on your podcast player, Spotify, or whatever. I hope that you do realize that nobody is a nobody, and that means you. Until next season. Mm-hmm.